BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C. Assalamu alaikum and welcome to Blogging Theology. Today we're honored to speak to Dr. Safarok Chowdhury. How are you, Akhi Saf? Assalamu alaikum, Assam. Good to see you, Habib. Likewise, likewise. Saf studied philosophy at King's College London and completed it with the accompanying Associate of King's College Award. He then traveled to Cairo studying the traditional Islamic studies curricula at Al-Azhar University. He returned to the UK to complete his master's at SOAS University with distinction. Saf's most recent book is entitled Islamic Theology and the Problem of Evil, published by AUC Press, which is the first work in Islamic studies to treat the topic within the analytic theology approach. Saf is currently lead researcher on the project Beyond Foundationalism, New Horizons in Muslim Analytic Theology, which is funded under a John Templeton Foundation grant award in association with Cambridge Muslim College and Aziz Foundation. Saf runs the website islamicanalytictheology.org on the senior editorial board of the Journal of Islamic Philosophy, and his academic work can be found on his academia page. And these links will be provided in the description box below. Now, today, Saf is going to be dissecting a number of arguments people have posed to the idea of petitionary prayer or in Muslim vocabulary, making dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to request something from him. So what is the point of making dua to Allah to grant us things? when our fate is already sealed? And why should we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for specific things when Allah already knows what is best for us? And so on. These are just a couple of the several questions that Saf will be discussing today. Saf, whenever you're ready, you may kick it off. my brother. Okay, Bismillah rahman rahim alhamdulillah. It's great to be with you, but again, great to be back on Blogging Theology. Great work you're doing with you and the team. May Allah give it, give you all tawfiq and, and really take it from strength to strength and let it be a beacon. Um, right, so as you introduce the topic, um, I want to look at the topic of petitionary prayer. The title of the presentation is uh, Fakhruddin al-Razi on the problem of petitionary prayer. Now, let me sort of give some background on my own interest in the topic. And then hopefully I won't spend too much time on that. And then we'll launch straight into what the issue or the issues are. Now, when I was researching, um, you know, theology in general, 
I found that a lot of a lot of discussion is about you know Allah Azza wa Jal and 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 does does Allah have knowledge of particulars you know juziyat as, as we call it in philosophy does God know particulars um, and that 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 was quite a heated discussion amongst theologians and philosophers or philosopher. Um, I I I I get that discussion and and in other places you know I've discussed it and and have my research on it and that's linked to the the attribute of divine omniscience or the attribute of ilm. But what I found was not many studies were done on, well, uh, on how prayer fits into this whole attribute of knowledge that our scholars actually addressed it. Um, and so I was looking and looking to see if there, if there was a philosophical or theological treatment of it. Other than a few sort of um, chapters here and there, you know, sort of, indirectly addressing the theme i never really saw a philosophical analysis of the topic and when i found out that imam fakhruddin al-razi um the student of al-ghazali um when he wrote on it i thought wow this this is interesting and 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 he actually i didn't know this he actually addressed it quite extensively in his commentary and i'll be talking about that in just a moment um so what i hope to do today is bring to light some of the discussions um, that Imam al-Razi brings to this topic, um, how he addresses the objections raised, um, as you highlighted, as you sort of outlined at the beginning, um, how does he address them? And in the presentation today, I want to try and simplify that discussion and, and, and bring it to the fore. And hopefully we can, you know, we can benefit from it and get some discussion going. Now, I must say, what I will be sketching out today uh, can be found in, in, in a lot of detail in my article that was published um, 2002, just um, in December 2002, by the Journal of Islamic Philosophy um, called in, Invoking Your Lord with Humility and in Secret, Fakhruddin al-Razi on the Problem of Petitionary Prayer. So if folks want to get more detailed analysis, information, references, uh, sources, they can consult that article um, in the journal. It's published as uh, volume 13. Um, and, um, you know, the links can be provided in Inshallah. Inshallah, Inshallah we'll, we'll, we'll link to the article. And I just want to say to, the, to our listeners that, you know, I read the article um, and it's actually, you know, quite fascinating and it's well re well articulated and well-structured so definitely check it out after you listen to this if if it's if academic articles aren't someone's appetite not everyone reads academic articles i will make available a uh, sort of uh, an outline of the issue of petitionary prayer within philosophical theology and that outlines in a more simple way what the core issues are in broad strokes what the core issues are and what some of the responses are as well, the philosophical responses that you'd find. So if you were to pick up a book on this topic, um, hopefully, and, and you read that book, the arguments you'll find, I have summarized that in a handout. So if anyone feels that they want to consult that, that could be available from my academia page. Perfect. Right. So all of that out of the way, 
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Um, let's get into the topic itself. That's just the, the screen there that, that you can see. The slide there just gives you the abstract of the article and then the sort of contents page of the journal. Um, okay. Now, many people know that a dua, and by the way, let me just get some terminology out of the way in case it does, does seem quite confusing. When I use the word prayer in this presentation, mm. I mean dua. Mm -hmm. So prayer, supplication, um, petition, requesting, um, imploring, beseeching. If I use these kind of words, and the word that I'll be using the most is prayer, I don't mean uh, salah, salah which, we, mm. yeah, which we usually use. And sorry about that if it, if it is quite confusing, but it's just I use the word prayer to bring it in line with the philosophical literature. Mm, so yeah. salah, if I mention salah, I'll mention the Arabic. But when I use the word prayer, I mean a dua, mm, the Arabic word a dua. So in I, I mean, every, there are books written on the importance of dua and, and, and many people would know. Uh, Sheikh Yasir Qadi's book on Dua, the weapon, uh, the weapon of the believer. If people aren't aware of that book, they should get it. It's an excellent summary of um, the topic of Dua. Like it covers what are the different types of Dua, the benefits of Dua, what are the conditions of Dua, the etiquette, all these things it goes through. And there is a little section actually on this topic. But the solution that the, the Sheikh puts forward, Sheikh Yasir, what he puts forward isn't actually, interesting enough, the solution that Imam al-Razi entertains. So um, uh, if need be, I can mention that later, but I'll go through the answers that, or the responses that Imam al-Razi mentions. So dua is very, very important in Islam. We know that Nabi alayhi salatu wasalam said, dua huwa ibadah you know, dua is the essence of worship itself. Um, and so at the center of Islam is dua. That is one of the defining acts, asking Allah, um, imploring Allah, beseeching, asking Allah for, for forgiveness. And there are lots of types of dua our ulama have categorized by surveying the Quran and surveying the hadith. But the dua that we're particularly interested in is what's known as dua or su'al, asking, praying to Allah in terms of requesting some specific thing. So asking Allah for something in particular. That is the dua that we're going to be looking at. And that is what I'll be referring to as petitionary prayer. Because mm. what, what Arazi does, he, he tackles the problem of prayer in general. But in my article, I, I I take the problem of prayer in general, but then I focus on petitionary prayer, asking, because most of our prayers are requesting Allah for something, whether that's good health, forgiveness, um, you know, a, a better outcome, 
a better situation, improving our condition. So we're always requesting Allah for something. So petitionary prayer um, becomes a large part of our prayer is taken up with um, petitioning Allah Azza wa Jal for certain things. So I'm not my, my intention isn't to cover the fadail, the virtues, the shara'il, the conditions of prayer. I just want to launch straight into what the crux of the issue is. Now, the crux of the issue arises not just because of abstract philosophical reflection. The prop the 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 mas'ala, the issue or the question, the qadiyya arises because of certain hadiths. And they are that the Prophet والسلام, mentioned that dua can repel the qadr. It can even change it, change predestination. You know, some people say, so So, if, if praying to Allah can change one's destiny, that raises straight away some interesting questions. Does that mean now destiny? Or even Allah's um, decrees, like his decisions and his knowledge of things from before things were created. Are these changeable? Does that mean dua has an efficacy, a ta'thir? This is what Imam al-Razi was particularly interested in. Is there an efficacy to, 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 to praying to Allah? So does that mean prayer is difference-making? Is it does it make a difference? Hmm. Is is does does dua become a factor that Allah considers when He providentially plans human destinies and, and entire human history? Is it something that Allah um puts consideration in? And these are sort of these are now you can see how they become philosophical issues hmm. because they tie into the divine knowledge, they tie into you know, well. Where does that leave human free will? Where does that leave? So these questions about uh, um, human actions, um, divine the, knowledge, the now become, human actions yeah, on Allah. Yeah, yeah, they start. They they now start to intersect. Mm. So, so inevitably, is um, I guess the point that I'm trying to make is that even if um, even if there was no philosophical impetus like just purely from a philosophical perspective to tackle the issue of petitionary prayer, these ahadith would have provoked some thinking um, naturally on the issue, and they did amongst the ulama. Mm. So that's hopefully um, the kind of sort of setup um, of of dua and, and, and how it raises these sort of intellectual questions. Uh, all right, so... Let me now, I know you did this at the beginning, I know you mentioned the, the way the problem is framed. Let me frame it in a bit more formal terms. Don't worry, don't worry about the symbols on, on the left of the presentation. Don't worry about that. Um, focus on just the premises. The argument, one formulation can go something like this. If, um, and this is the kind of formulation that uh, Imam al-Razi sort of deals with anyway. So it's relevant to our, our presentation today. Right, so if Allah knows everything, um, then, you know, he already knows what we're going to ask him. 
He knows what we're going to ask him. And if he's all powerful, he can do anything, Jalla wa'ala, then he already knows, he has the power to fulfill all of our needs. And if he's um, the most merciful, gracious, the most kind, um, the most loving, the most caring, he would want to fulfill our needs and, and, and what we want before we even ask it anyway. Mm. So given Allah's maximum knowledge, his power, and his desire to want the best for his uh, ibad, his servants, before they even ask him, if, if these are the case, then what's the point then in making dua to Allah Azza wa Jal? That's, that's the setup. What's the point of petitioning Allah if he already knows what we want, he knows how to fulfill it, he's going to give it anyway, even if we weren't going to pray for that thing. If it was a good, and he wants our best interest and, 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 and he wants our uh, well-being, then he was going to give it anyway. So then why are we praying to him then? That's the sort of framework. Mm. Um, and then on the left, that's just a, a sort of symbolic representation of the argument. Now, that's the problem set up. And that is the problem really that Imam Razi sort of tackles head on. Now, where does he tackle it? In two works, in two works. One of them is his philosophical work, and I mean it's philosophical proper. I mean, it is, you know, really dense. And that's mm. known as Al-Matalib Al-Aliyah Min Ilm Al-Ilahiyat. This is his book, The Lofty Sort of Objectives or Aspirations in, you know, the Science of Metaphysics or Divinity or however, however we want to translate it, Science of Theology. Um, that's a very, you know, very, very heavy philosophical work. Anyone who is a, who studies philosophy, and I mean mainly sort of philosophy in the analytic tradition, which is what most, most philosophy departments, that's the approach they have. Mm. You're going to love something like Al-Matalib Al-Aliya. I mean, this is straight out of, you know, proper sort of methodological sort of uh, thinking. Um, so he addresses it in one section, one chapter, um, and I outline this more within the article. Um, I believe the, the Matalib is one of his last works, right? Yeah, it is actually. And from, from the chronology of his works, Imam al-Razi, um, and the, the work itself is very interesting. Can't go into it now. Some of the article points out, um, some aspects about the methodology and, and its importance. A PhD has been done on it and other works have been done surveying the importance of it in post-classical Islamic intellectual thought. So after the so after the 12th and 13th century, basically. Um, so that's that's he addresses that, but he addresses it in a in a in a sort of philosophical way. There's no ayat of the Quran, there's no ahadith that that he just addresses it from an intellectual he, he looks at objections and then he addresses it intellectually. But in the Mafatih, what I found was, and this is my other source, you'd see, if you look, uh, if you can see on the slide, there's the cover um, picture of the Tafsir Fakhruddin al-Razi, known as the Mafatih al-Ghayb, the um, Keys to the Unseen, which is his sort of 
encyclopedic tafsir of the Quran, one of my favorites, by the way. I mm. think Razi's tafsir, I think it's superb. Um, and there are there are chapters of there are aspects of the Mafatih that I'm finishing off publishing one on his 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 uh, doctrine of al-qada wal-qadr and a philosophical analysis of it and some other topics in the Mafatih. I think it's a wonderful tafsir. And what's if interesting I'm, if I, I'm ever researching about an ayah, uh, Razi's uh, tafsir is a mandatory uh, go-to. Absolutely. I love it. I mean, you know, it's uh, only a tafsir. Only Imam Razi will be thinking about the masail, the issues in the way that he does mm. and brings it into the Quran. Mm. Mm. Okay, so it's not for everyone, I know. But what I found what's interesting in the, in the tafsir, he takes the exact same arguments that are in the matalib, whichever way you want to look at, whichever way around, but mm. the same arguments that are in the matalib al-aliyah, he addresses them in the tafsir, but now he brings sort of more um, scriptural responses. Mm, mm, yeah. And so um, uh, that that's interesting. So he's in one work, he's addressing it philosophically. Mm, in another work, he's addressing it exegetically. Mm, mm, and so what I try and do in the article is that um, I, I try and in my response, put a mixture of both. Yeah. Um, and then you, anyone who reads the article, hopefully find that the more details there. So those are my two sources, um, his philosophical work and his um, uh, exegetical work. If the philosophical work is not anyone's cup of tea, the, the tafsir will be more than sufficient. It will be yeah. more, than, more than sufficient. So those then are, are, are our sources. Now, in the, in the article, I do go over 12 objections, mm. but if we group them together, I think we can get six main the objection the objections can be grouped into six main categories mm -hmm. and i've named them as follows um and then i'll go through the what the objection is and then imam fakhruddin al-razi's response so the first the first one is known as the impassibility problem now this is just another way of saying that if if um Allah is not su subject to change. Mm. If Allah is immutable, his knowledge doesn't increase or decrease. Um, he's not subject to sort of what they call temporal changes. Mm. Hawadith, he isn't in one state, then he acquires another state or something like that. Um, if Allah is unchanging, and then how can, how can we change Allah by praying? If we make dua to Allah, how can we change an absolute perfect being who's unchangeable? What effect is dua going to have on an unchangeable being? That's the general sort of um, sort of uh, a summary of the problem. And I'll, I'll go through them again. I'll just summarize them each now. Then there's the problem of omniscience. I think most of most readers will probably and viewers will probably know what the problem of omniscience is in general, this is that if, if um, Allah already knows what we're going to do, then what's the point of us praying? Um, because one, he's what he already knows what we're going to do. So in what sense are we free to make the dua? And how are we going to 
how are we going to cause any change in Allah's knowledge anyway? So if Allah knows we're going to pray, what's the point of us praying? Because we're going to do what he knows anyway. So that brings the problem of foreknowledge into here. We can only do what Allah is going to know. So in what way are we freely praying anyway? It looks like it's pointless because we're just we're compelled to do what Allah already knows from eternity. So not only is there no efficacy to the prayer, there's, we haven't even prayed freely. So that's the second problem. Now, the third problem says the problem of omnibenevolence. Again, I, I touched on that in the formulation. If Allah is has has um, jeweled or generosity, the most maximal generosity, he's always going to do what is best for his servants before they ask for it. If Allah was going to grant what is good for the servant before the servant prays, then what has my prayer added to that? It looks like prayer is superfluous. It looks like dua uh, had added nothing substantive. It's just an empty action then. What's the point of me praying if Allah was already going to give it to me anyway? Because that's what he would want to do, right? The assumption is. He'd want to do that anyway. So that's the problem of omnibenevolence. Then there's the problem of decree, the qada of Allah. And that links to the omniscience problem. How do we change? How can dua, a finite temporal act, change the qada of Allah, Allah's decree min um, al from eternity? So Allah's decrees, his decisions, his knowledge of all things, his desire that things be a certain way. How can a temporal thing, something done in time, space and time, change something that's already been decided from eternity? This is known as the, the divine decree problem. Am I going to give that the, the dua that much power? That's what the objector raises. Mm. Then there is these two interesting objections to dua. This is where it gets a bit scriptural. One objection is, what I've labelled as a problem of bad comportment or su'al adab. Mm. The objector says making du'a is actually bad manners. How is it bad? Well, you're, you're, you're commanding someone who's your superior to do something for you. Do this for me. Can you do that for me? So in the Arabic language, when we make du'a, we use this the sirat al-amr, right? We use the imperative form. Mm. But the imperative form, the objection goes, must come from high to low, from someone who's in, superior to someone inferior. A command cannot come from properly, mm. from an inferior to a superior. Mm. So the subordinate, insubordinate um, symmetry or asymmetry. So the objection goes, make, making dua is bad comportment. Mm. So requesting Allah, Allah give me this, Allah give me that, Allah grant me this, Allah grant me that. Mm. This is bad etiquette. Mm. So therefore prayers, not only is prayer not efficacious, but it's also bad, you know, bad manners. What, would, it, would it be fair to say that for this specific objection, that it's uh, obje not objecting to the core or the substance of dua, but to the most common forms of articulation of the dua yes so the yes. Mo so 
but obviously it's still relevant to us. Yeah, it brings that, the objection. Yeah, yeah. and uh, because some people want to, he says some people want to problematize dua in general, praying to Allah in general with yeah. these kind of objections. The yeah. others are quite philosophical, right? Mm -hmm. You know, they, but th this is not really philosophical per se. Mm -hmm. um, but so Arazi is trying to bring, Rahimahullah, he's trying to bring objections sort of from all angles. He's trying to bring them together and then he wants to address them all um, together from all its facets. Uh, so bad, the problem of bad comportment is sort of adab. Um, and then the other one that's interesting is the problem of spiritual impediment. Again, like I said, I'll go through each, each in a bit detail. The problem of spiritual impediment says dua is actually quite a selfish act. Mm. The objection goes. You're praying to Allah because, you know, some because there's some some kind of aggrandizement involved or some kind of um you're seeking you're reveling in the act itself rather than the object of your act mm -hmm. allah azza wa jal rather you are reveling in the act and trying to 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 sort of aggrandize yourself that's mm. self aggrandizement mm. but that's not a spiritually good thing that is not good for the nafs mm. so ra rather the objection goes it looks like prayer becomes an impediment, a maniac to getting sort of lofty, um, sort of religious or conscientious religious, um, a religious conscientiousness. It becomes a barrier um, to sort of spiritual growth. So these are the kind of six um, sort of main problems that we can group the problems of, of, of petitionary prayer or prayer in general. Now, let's then go into some of the, the replies. We will go into each of the six objections and then look at some of the replies that Imam Ar-Razi sort of gives. <clears throat> Again, as I, as I mentioned, the details of these and the sort of philosophical analysis can be gained from the article, the journal article. Okay, so the impassibility problem. Now, with these replies, um, Imam al-Razi, we see some of the objections he gives quite a lot of space to. Other times, he just sort of thinks, I'm going to give a one-line response and moves on. Mm. So it's interesting what kind of arguments he thinks are worth his time or... Um, that he thinks is 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 sort of subs an objection that's substantive. Maybe one way to know whether he thinks an objection is substantive is the length of response he gives to it. That's one way maybe of ascertaining. It's not a very scientific way, but we can gauge Imam Razi sort of how he's looking at certain objections and where he thinks some objections are stronger than others. But one thing he does do, which is interesting, and, and authors have pointed this out. And there seems to be a very particular thing about Imam al-Razi is that when he lays out objections, he is detailed when he lays out the objections. But when he gives his replies, rahimahullah, sometimes his replies are just quite, some people might say they're very superficial, mm -hmm. you know, and, and he, you know, he doesn't delve into the answers. His answers aren't as detailed as the objections. Yeah. So this but, is something. Yeah. But, yeah. You know, so, so, uh, one theory I have, a personal theory, yeah. um, is that you know I, I think first of all Imam Razi probably did not foresee um, uh, 
uh, how accessible his commentary will become to yeah. you know the Muslim Ummah, right? And uh, sometimes you could see that maybe he's per perhaps challenging himself at times, you know, detailing out these these objections. And if he feels that okay, look, no, this is something that I myself am yet to know the answer to. So yeah, yeah, yeah. let me give this some thought and let me write it down before I possibly forget the answer. Absolutely. While while he may lay down another objection because he wants to be comprehensive, but for him it's a it's a cakewalk. He already has the answer in his head. He probably th thinks to himself, you know what, me and my fellow peers who are going to be reading my commentary. I mean, your average Khalid is not going to be reading my commentary, right? So uh, I don't have to worry about him. My fellow peers and I, we could. This is a cakewalk for us. So yeah. let's give a two liner and let's move on. You know, I mean. Who knows how you're thinking, right? Uh, but but I think you're right, though, because and that's what we do, right? That's what any academic I, does. Sometimes that, you address yeah. a point. <laughs> yeah. You address a point in detail, and some some on some questions, other questions, you say, "Yeah, here's something to consider. I'll come back to it." Yeah. And we have to remember. So often people think a tafsir is written in a linear way, like mm. in one go they just sat down and wrote it mm. from back to front. Mm. Sometimes you know, the ulama came back, and the editing wasn't. You know, we don't have the ease of editing that we do now. You know, so. Um, but one thing we can say is any 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 masala or qadiyah that Imam Al Razi does raise, he does address it in other works. He doesn't just just you know these come up in other works and then he addresses it there. Sometimes he doesn't, and it's natural to not answer many leave questions unanswered. Um, so I, I think it shouldn't surprise. It's a human. This is a human product. A tafsir. It's not. Um, it's it's a scholar who's one of the most, you know one of the highest intellectuals, you know, in, 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 in medieval history, for sure, you know, grappling with these issues. And like you said, sometimes he'll have an answer that he knows a question to straight away. Other times you jot something down, maybe come back to it later. Maybe he just, we, you he know, just right doesn't. now, uh, are, are accessible via the, the click yes, of a mouse. Us, so, you, yeah. so you may have an, a layman who can read Arabic, probably checking out one of his, one of Imam Razi's commentaries. He see Imam Razi teasing out this these arguments, uh, but probably did not respond to them at that at that point sufficiently. Point, yeah. And the layman gets confused. But you know, Imam Razi doesn't have that layman in mind coming and accessing the commentary it. without you know the, uh, you know uh, having uh, a mentor nearby that he can consult or reading the rest of his works. So you know, it's not a Jalalain. I yeah. mean, we know that clearly. You know, this is uh, uh, anyone who picks up. Mafatih uh, al will know straight away. No, this is not a portable tafsir. This is uh, it's gonna we're gonna you know this is really you know very rarefied you know masail in there, and it's wonderful discussions that are in there. Okay, so excellent point there actually that that you know this is this is the methodology of tafsir, and 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 so this is not a a, a deficiency on on the part of the author, right? So, oh, so this objection then you know about Allah being impassable. God being impassable, unchanging in, in his planning, his decisions, you know, everything that he's done, there can't be any change. Then how can prayer affect that change in essentially an unchangeable, perfect creator? Um, that must mean prayer has no power. It has no tethid here. So Imam al-Razi, one, one of the replies that I construct in the article is that if if Allah is beyond time, so the doctrine of eternalism, 
um, that Allah is not subject to space and time. Um, so that's, if that is the case, um, then what and what an eternal creator can do is because they're outside of time, they can factor in when they were planning human destiny and creaturely history, they can factor in which temporal prayers would have been made at what time and where and factor that in the, the, the whole providential plan. So there's no change necessarily on on the creator's part. Um, the creator remains unchanging. It's just the prayer that was factored in will, would have been made at the time that it's made. And then if that prayer was answered, the answer would have already been factored in from eternity. Yeah. So Allah SWT would say, uh, I know Khalid is going to make dua yes. requesting XYZ on May 20th, 2023. And in response, I will actualize his request 10 days later at this time on this yeah. date. And that was yeah. my decree or Allah's decree and decision that it actualized 10 days later when that temporal act of du'a was made. But it was done not at the time itself um, in a de novo way, in a new way, but it was done, it was decreed for pre-eternity and Allah's knowledge and his power had enabled that decree to be actualized. Mm. Um, so a timeless, eternal sort of creator can do that because they're outside of time. So that was one one response um, you can have to the challenge, and that goes some way to assuaging the objection. Again, I must say though, Imam Fakhruddin al-Razi doesn't in any way that I remember anyway. Um, he doesn't say that the res these responses are the only ones. He you know he gives a reply, and you know he felt these were sufficient to deal with the issue. And where it was, the, the argument wasn't clear, I constructed it from um, Imam al-Razi's sort of ideas and beliefs from elsewhere of, mm. in his works, yeah. Okay, so that's the impassibility problem. Uh, and again, you know, you can find the philosophical uh, sort of arguments for these in the contemporary literature and the handout that I mentioned at the beginning. It's the same argument. How does something temporal affect something atemporal that's essentially the mas'ala how does something here in the world affect something up in heaven here on earth how does it affect something up in heaven okay so the omniscience problem now this was a problem as we mentioned briefly that if Allah is omniscient knows everything and what he knows will inevitably come to pass then irrespective of what anyone does, whether it is dua or anything, it's not going to make a change to Allah's knowledge. So that must mean our acts in general, and more specifically our acts of making dua, what's the point? If Allah already knows I'm going to pray for, let's say, Khalid to become better. Um, but what's, what's the point of me praying then? If Allah already knows what I'm going to do, then what's the power of my prayer got to do with anything? If I'm already going to do what Allah knows that I'm going to do, one, am I? I'm not free to, to actually do it because Allah, Allah's knowledge, according to this objection, precludes my, my 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 choice to do otherwise. And two, if it precludes my choice to do otherwise, then I might as well not do anything. What's the point? I might as well sit there idly and not do anything. This is why 
uh, th- this sort of carries a kind of fatalistic element. There's a fatalistic element here. So what what is it, what can Imam Razi attack here in this foreknowledge argument? So his reply is, okay, look, how can you jump from d- divine foreknowledge to this idea of, you know, shrugging your shoulders and resigning and say, you know, we're fated. What's the point of praying? Prayer is pointless because we're fated to do what Allah Azza wa Jal knows anyway. Um, because the fatalist, the fatalist says, whatever you choose to do or not to do, whether you want to do it or not, you're going to do whatever it is that you're fated to do. And in this case, what you're fated to do is what Allah knows. So you don't have the ability to act otherwise. Um, so Arazi said this fatalism doctrine is, is silly because we don't, um, when we're hungry, we don't say to alleviate my hunger, irrespective of whether I eat or don't eat, it's not going to make a difference. Actually, no, it will. Your eating will make a difference to your hunger. So he says, look, this is this is no one, no one um, practically believes this or acts in this way. Yeah. You know, this kind of uh, uh, a fatalist in this kind of fatalistic way. And that's one of his responses. His other response is just to say, look, this mas'ala of foreknowledge is a complex mas'ala anyway. And ultimately, we, we just have to appeal to our creaturely finitude. We just don't know how Allah knows everything beforehand, and yet how we can act in a meaningful way. We just don't know how the two, in any meaningful way, or any comprehensive way, can be reconciled, if indeed they ought to be reconciled. So, on one hand, Arazi says, Fatalism cannot be an option because we can make an intervention. We don't just sit there idly and say, well, I'm going to I'm in a burning house. Either it's going to burn me to the ground or it's not going to burn me to the ground. Either way, I, I can't. My actions aren't going to make a difference either way. Well, it can. You can run out of the house. Um, either you, you adopt a fatalist doctrine, which is erroneous, or you just hold your hand up and say, how how do we? account for how a, a, an omniscient creator knows all things. You know, we just we just don't know. Um, I think this comes up a lot in, you know, uh, you know, in discussions on reconciling free will with yeah. uh, with predestination. And, and does divine foreknowledge cause us to do what we do? Yeah. Or is Allah's foreknowledge merely knowing in advance, what the causes of our actions are, right? And you know, one philosopher gave the analogy of uh, the infallible weather forecaster, right? So think of an infallible yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, weather forecaster, right? He always gets the weather right, but it's not going to rain because he forecasted that it's going to rain, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the forecasting itself is not the cause of the rainfall. Um, yes, the, it, it, since he's infallible, it is going to rain, no Absolutely. doubt. But the cause of the rainfall is not the act, is not the forecasting itself. And similarly, when we're thinking of you know divine foreknowledge, you know, Allah Subhanahu wa Taala knowing everything in advance, that that mere knowledge itself need not be the you know the causal determinant 
for our actions. So yes, it is very well the case that whatever I do, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows it. And it's impossible that I will do something that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did not already foreknow. But it is not the foreknowledge itself that is, that is the cause. There could be another cause, yeah. but yeah. Allah foreknew that cause of my actions. So, you know, there's a big leap here being made to attributing the cause to the foreknowledge itself, right? And, and, and as you said, th this right, argument right. could extend to everything. It's not just dua, you know? Yes, just, yes. You know, why create yes. us? Why did Allah create us when he already knows the end result? Just put us in hell right away, right? It's very similar yeah. to this kind of argument, right? Absolutely. I think you, you've, you've given a brilliant solution there. And this is what you'll find in the theological literature, that knowledge knowledge is factive. So there is an object of your knowledge. That's true. So Allah Azza wa Jal knows. It's not that nothing, you know, he knows what everyone is going to do. So, so, so there is that element there. But it's descriptive. It's wasfi, as you mentioned. But it's not mm. causative. That's the that's the response. Mm. It doesn't make you do it. Mm. And the and and the other thing is that and this is a good lesson for those who are doing um, studying logic. So if you study modal logic, mm. you look at it. It's the, the, this is a there's a modal fallacy here. Now it might be leave it for some homework if uh, the, the viewers are interested in where the modal fallacy lies. I.e., um, if it's what necessarily. It's necessarily the case that Allah Azza wa Jal knows what everyone's going to do. Yeah, it's necessarily the case. But does it follow from that that you must do the action that you do? It is necessary that you do the act you do. Now, can you make that modal shift? Logicians say you can't. That's the modal fallacy. Because to, to, you know you can't say Allah must know what I do. Therefore, mm. I must do what he knows. The exactly. must here needs to be differentiated, disambiguated. Mm -hmm. And this is a good lesson. This is a textbook fallacy in modal logic that, you know, the, known as the modal fallacy. You can't go from, if it's necessary that God knows what I do, which is true, He, I will do what he knows. But can I infer from that, therefore, I cannot do otherwise. And this was a solution given by Al-Farabi, actually, mm. Um which is, you know, is one of my favorite responses because it really gets to the logic of the issue. Um, so that modal, uh, that's a modal fallacy. Um, okay, so that's the problem of omniscience. Mm. The divine decree problem, again, is very similar to the immutability problem. If Allah is qadha is, is, is um, fixed, his decree has been fixed from or, you know, his decree has come to, will come to pass, but it's been decided from eternity. It can't be changed. Then how can me making a dua make Allah change what is already immutable? So it's similar to the impassibility. Uh, it's just like a subspecies of the impassibility problem. How can I do something now that's going to change something that's fixed in eternity? Again, Imam al-Razi says, that first of all, prayer is not pointless, and he's he's careful to point that out because there are huge benefits in praying. Mm -hmm. um, uh, both, as mentioned in the hadith, the numerous benefits, and of course, um, benefits for the person praying, and the fact that it, it does have have effect in the world. So he goes, prayers aren't pointless, um, but again, he attacks the fatalistic stance towards the matters of divine decree. We can't just 
it's nonsensical to say um, that my prayer, um, I can't make any change to the divine decree, so I'll just resign in the face of the divine decree and not do anything. The other argument, of course, he does give is that um, Allah tells us to make dua and and on the basis of that dua, Allah will make an intervention. I.e. the concern that Allah has is made purely because of that dua. So Allah is concerned about the dua being made. That's important. So even if we can't reconcile how it is from eternity, Allah has his decree will come to pass and how everything fits in his decree. Um, we are we are told to pray to Allah. Uh, and that prayer will affect a, a change. That intervention of praying will affect a change. What we cannot do is be idle. I think in the beginning, uh, you you alluded to uh, the fact that there are hadith um, related to this point that dua can change, um, you know, uh, uh, Allah's decree. And from what I recall, I mean, it's been a few years, but uh, from what I recall, uh, and I don't know if it's a consensus, but uh, yes. many scholars have interpreted that as not referring to what is written in the preserved tablet, but referring to the books that the angels on our shoulders are are writing. Um, I'm not sure if you've come across any other interpretations um, for that hadith. Yeah, so this is the mubram, ghair mubram sort of idea. Mm. So decree that is changeable, and then the decree that is immutable. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah, you're right. That is that definitely, that's, that's one of the standard responses we will find. I'm not sure if it's, the consensus on I'm not sure I don't want to yeah yeah, yeah you're right on, on, yeah, yeah, yeah I, I just know it's a scholarly right. I know it's a scholarly it is it is, it is. this is I don't know if there are other opinions yeah you're absolutely right the other interpretation is that this the hadith is interpreted to be not in a literal sense hmm. but in a in a non-literal sense now it's not that the qada itself hmm. can be changed but what did what does that stand for? You know, what how do we now non-literally interpret it? And so ulama gives some kind of glosses as to what that could mean. So there is that interpretation as well. Um what was the other interpretation? I'm just trying to think of off the top of my head. You, you, um uh there is a one that's a non-figurative interpretation. If when it comes to me, I'll mention it. I'll I'll mention it. Um, I, I, you know, I, I guess, you know, another way uh, that perhaps we might uh, understand it, and I'm, and I'm just being hesitant because uh, I don't like giving opinions for myself, uh, but if we understand divine decree as Allah foreknowing what we were going to do, in addition to writing down, uh, not literally, of course, of what we're going to do in the preserved tablet, and then yeah. willing, willing what we're going to do, um, it could be the case, and that is what divine decree is, knowing and documenting in the preserved tablet and willing what everything that's going to happen. If, and as we just said, you know, uh, uh, you know uh, a few minutes ago, that Allah, Allah's foreknowledge is not causative but descriptive. Um, your, your decision as to whether you're going to be making dua or not would have already influenced what would have been foreknown and, uh, and and documented in the preserved tablet because that was under 
you have the free will, and, uh, and that was under your control, whether whether you want to make a du'a or not, right? And so it, you, you could think about it in a way that, look, you are kind of responsible for what has already been foreknown and for what has already been documented in the preserved tablet because you have the free will to do what it is you're going to be doing. So I guess there's that, that could be another way of um, maybe understanding how we influence uh, our own uh, fate. Uh, in a way, given that there is free will and we're, we're, we're not hard determinists, we're not jabariya uh, in that sense. Possibly, but, uh, you know, uh, I mean, I don't want to... Yeah, yeah, this is a, this is a definitely a huge a huge discussion. That, that And this is why petitionary prayer becomes, it intersects with so many of these issues mm. um, that are discussed separately anyway. But this is why I said at the beginning, I found it quite remarkable then, despite you know, discussions about, you know, what we've just been talking about now, and Qadar, and then Al-Ikhtiyar, Al-Jabar, all these kind of ideas, you know, free choice and, you know, determinism and, and, and uh, libertarianism, all these kind of ideas, no one sort of, you know, the, the radar sort of been off, or the, the, the focus hasn't been on this particular matter. Um, so, yeah, so you're right, and the, these solutions uh, we'll find in the Hadith literature, and then there's the other one, of course, that Razi doesn't entertain, which I'm not going to talk about now. And this is the the, the notion of asbab or causes. And, and, and it's understandable why he wouldn't go for the causal discussion, because being broadly an Ash'ari him, himself, you know, occasionalism is the is the doctrine mm. that, you know, he, he subscribes to. And so there isn't uh, creation doesn't cause and effect isn't a system put in place that Allah, you know, in his wisdom and, 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 you know, power and knowledge and decree has decided to function properly. Mm-hmm. Um, rather, everything is dependent on Allah enabling something to cause something else. So it's understandable why he wouldn't bring causality into the discussion, which he doesn't. Mm-hmm. Um, though I believe that there are some assumptions about causality, which you'd have to make for certain of his replies to be valid. Um, so then it raises the question of whether when he was replying, was he only replying from his particular theological perspective or was he offering a broad ambit of, of responses? Because in a paper that I'm writing, I've, I finished writing, hopefully it will be in its peer review stages, Sheikh um, al-Islam Ibn Taymiyyah's response to petitionary prayer. In that, it's all about causality. Mm-hmm. It's all about causality. And that becomes part of the way Sheikh al-Islam addresses the issue of petitionary prayer. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so so that was that's just an interesting sort of observation on how different scholars address the issue. The thing that I wanted to mention about omniscience, but I think you covered it, we can come back to it if, if we need to. Now, this omnibenevolence problem, again, going back to uh, what we mentioned earlier, uh, it, it is that if, Allah will give you what is good for you, then he is going to give it to you. He shouldn't give it to you conditional on a prayer. He would He would give it to you regardless. He'll give it to you regardless. And so um, what's then the point of you praying? Your prayer isn't the reason why he's giving it to you. He's giving it to you because he is the most generous, the most loving, compassionate, and so on. So one of Arazi's arguments could be, in reply to this is look 
Yes, it's true. Yeah, Allah gives things before we ask for it. Um, and sometimes he may not even give things that we do ask because it's not for our good. Um, so, yes, prayer may not be a factor he considers in granting you your goods. Um, but, but we can't rule out dua a priori. We cannot rule it out a priori because there are times when Allah mentions a good will be granted conditional on you praying. So in the article, I mentioned an example of um, like the dua of the prophets, salam. Sometimes Allah wants to grant things through the act of his servant making the dua. It is on account of that that Allah grants the good. It did, must he do that? No, he doesn't have to. But there are times when he wants to make it conditional on the dua. If it, as one who's petitioning for us, so we understand that we come to realize that maybe we're not in control um, for an act that brings us closer to Allah. Um, and for many reasons. Yeah. Um, so it could be that we shouldn't a priori rule out prayer because it could have been because of that prayer that we subsequently do that Allah grants the good based on it. So this is one of his responses that he can give. It's, the, it's on account of the dua that Allah grants the good. So long as that's even possible, so long as we can show examples from the hadith or the Quran that this is the case, then we know now from scripture that Allah fa factors dua in to, to give a good. Allah will grant a good, making it conditional on dua. You know, when, it so, to, when it comes to yeah. these sorts of arguments, you could see yeah. the theological presupposition, unwarranted yes, yes. theological presupposition being made regarding how, you how to even understand Allah's attributes. And we, and we see this with, with other people, right? With, like with Christians. Oh, so if, you, if your God is all loving, you know, he's a wadud, you know, uh, how, how is it that he does not love some people? Or if your God is, or as, as atheists will say, if your God is all good, then why does he allow evil to occur, right? And they look at these, and same thing with this argument that you're, that you're, trying, that you're addressing here. You know, if Allah is all generous and gracious, then, you know, and they look at these attributes in isolation, and they don't look at them holistically, and 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 see how they could complement each other because you know as you just said you know uh allah is also all wise there could be a reason why he is uh you know with, you know not answering your prayer at a you know uh, uh or, or not giving you something unless you pray for it etc yes. there could be uh, benefits and wisdom behind that and so i think this is an issue with with, with these sorts of objections uh that they're looking at honing in on attributes and isolation of the others and they're presupposing that, okay, uh, given this, Allah, we expect that God behaves or acts in a certain way. And, uh, and that's so where in the response, yeah, you're absolutely right. In, in, the, in the response, in the article, I, I mentioned that another, a maneuver that Arazi can make is mm. why grant the assumption mm, mm. of, you know, a divine, the divine welfare the welfare, you know, sort of model of divine action that only the the Allah is only bound to do the aslah or only do something in the masalih um, or in the perceived masalih of his creatures. Again, going back to, of course, his theological 
um, sort of framework being broadly Ash'ari in that sense that um, what he, Allah is not duty bound to do what is the optimal good. Um, so, uh, so he 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 can attack, like you mentioned, the presupposition. So that I don't want to go into that because that would take us sort of further down, you know, unpacking other assumptions and, and things like that. So that is also in the article. So I, I guess the point you made is that these all these attributes, and I put this in the handout as well for those who want to read. There are assumptions about omniscience, assumptions about uh, divine goodness and fairness. Mm. That again, those assumptions themselves need to be interrogated. Exactly. Um, and so, yeah, so it's omnibenevolence here. And some of it, Arazi points out in his response, is because we're talking about ultimately matters of the ghaib, like how does a prayer, how does the, how does a prayer one, how is it factored into Allah's providence? And how does he respond to prayer? We don't know. Isn't it? Ultimately, it's a matter of the ghaib. So, um, uh, so, so long as all we have to show is that are there instances where Allah factors in dua to make it conditional on granting some good? Yes. We find that in the hadith in many places. Um, you know, even with the case, you could say, for example, um, asking when Abu Huraira radiallahu asked the messenger of Allah to pray for his mother. Um, the conversion, that good of conversion, was granted on account of Nabi alayhi salatu wasalam making the dua to Allah azza wa jal. Um, so there are many, many instances where a good is granted, made, made conditional on the prayer. Now Abu Huraira radiallahu anhu could have said, said, yeah, whether you pray or not, Ya Rasulullah, Allah is going to grant it anyway, right? Because, you know, why pray at all? Praying or not praying isn't going to make a difference because Allah already knows if my mum's going to, you know, change my mum, my, my mother's heart. Um, so you know, let's just not do anything. But He asked the Messenger of Allah to pray, and on account of that prayer, the good was granted. Right. Mm -hmm. So the, 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 there's many instances we can show where the good is granted in abeyance. The good is kept in abeyance until the prayer is made, and it's granted on the condition of that prayer or on on the enact. Enacting that prayer. Okay. Um, the penultimate objection, the problem of bad comportment. Arazi says to this objection, which says, look, praying to Allah, constantly using the imperative is 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 bad manners, is disrespectful. Therefore, dua, we shouldn't make dua. It's disrespectful. Um, if you were in the court of a king, or ruler, sultan, and you kept making demands, it might come to a point where you're probably going to be ejected out of the majlis mm. or the court for your impudence and your, 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 your disrespect. Similarly, in the court of the king of kings, surely you wouldn't keep making demands in this way. The act itself, there's something, um, uh, you know, below respect about it. Arazi says, well, hang on, that doesn't make sense. What if I beseech Allah? Yes, grammatically, all the du'as are in the imperative form. But we know that these imperative forms are uh, 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 
they one they can carry different meanings. So when you say, so when we ask, when we are commanding Allah, what what we're actually doing is we're beseeching Him because we're in a position of inferiority. Um, but if we do it out of reverence and acknowledging our own weakness and finitude and need and iftikhar, then then there's nothing wrong in in asking Allah for that. And in fact, this is the kind of thing that Allah loves. This is why I put it in the title of my article, imploring Allah with humility and in secret, because Allah likes us. He likes to see us pray sincerely with humility and doing it in secret, not making a spectacle of it. Um, so if it's done with proper etiquette, then actually it's not something that's blameworthy and bad, bad adab or etiquette. In fact, this is superior etiquette. So asking a king, you know, in a respectful way or asking someone who's your elder in a respectful way, there's nothing blameworthy about that, requesting something for someone as long as it's done with the proper comportment. So Razi, I think, is probably scratching his head thinking, why is this a bad argument? Why is this about, you know, an objection? Just turn the table, do it properly, and it'd be quite efficacious. You know, and I think, uh, you know, uh, you know, Prophet Salam, you know, also uh, that that you know before we actually make the request that you you praise Allah Subhanahu wa Taala first right that that you're, you're actually doing dhikr you're glorifying Allah Subhanahu wa Taala um, and then you you make that request I think maybe the people that kind of that would probably put forth this kind of argument are probably trying to see how we deal with each other in terms of you know custom because we always say may you please. May you kindly, you know, uh, I would appreciate it if you, right? And this is how we're accustomed to speaking to each other. Because if I just said, you know, um, uh, Saf, uh, give me that water, you know, yeah. obviously you're not yeah. going to like that, right? But at the same yeah. time, I'm not singing your praises and glorifying you before I made the request, yeah. right? So, so obviously it's not a perfect um, uh, analogy. So, you know, if Allah you know, declares that, uh, one can um, call out to him in this manner, um, then who are we to say that, you know, um, he will be offended or not be offended, right? That, yeah. that's, uh, that's certainly his prerogative. And I think this is born out of the fact about how we are accustomed to dealing with each other um, and neglecting to factor into consideration that Allah Ta'ala, you know, would approve yeah, I, being spoken to in a certain way, and he and obviously he knows what is in our hearts. We don't know what other what is in the hearts of other people. You know, I would accept that my father speaks to me in a certain way, uh, or uh, a good friend of mine would expect me uh, would be okay with me saying, "Yo, know, pass the water," right? Because we're really good friends, and he knows that I don't intend any disrespect by that. Um, while if I walk up to a stranger and I say the same thing, he will not appreciate that. Well, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows all hearts. He knows we're not commanding him. He knows what we're actually feeling and what we truly intend when we make dua and we, we use the imperative form. So that's perfectly okay, right? And I think uh, we just have to bear in mind that he knows what we intend and that's all that there really is to it in a way. <laughs> And you're right. I mean, look, that's one of the etiquettes of, of du'a is to make du'a expecting a response from Allah Azza wa Jal. We know that because in Baqarah, in fact, this is the ayah that Ar-Razi 
interprets at quite length, and I do mention a bit of it in my article. إِذَا سَأَلَكَ عِبَادِي عَنِّي إِنَّ إِنِّي قَلِيلٌ أُجِيبُ دَعْوَةَ دَعْوَةِ إِذَا دَعَانَ Tell my 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 servant that you know I if if they you know pray to me or implore me, I am near and I and I will respond to the one who calls out to me, and then you know. Zakaria alayhi salam, I can't remember which uh, surah it's in, innaka sami'u dua. Allah, you hear, verily you hear, you listen to the to the prayers, to the supplications, you know, you 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 hear it. Um and so the, the, the expectation, the etiquette is to pray, expecting a response from Allah. But obviously not an immediate response. There's no the, 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 there's nothing, and that's a whole other discussion that Allah must respond straight away. But it must be prayed. The etiquette is to pray earnestly with humility, uh, 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 but expecting that Allah Azza wa Jal will um, re- will reply to that dua. Brilliant. All right. So, the, so the last one, the spiritual impediment one. So, the objection uh, to reiterate it is. When people pray, the objection goes, what they're looking for is self-satisfaction. They want they want certain psychologically satisfying states. Um, and so really the focus becomes themselves and not Allah Azza wa Jal, who is the one to whom we are praying. Um, and if that's the case, then dua becomes a prevention rather than it becomes a hindrance rather than a power of development and transformation. But Arazi counters by arguing that look, if dua is performed again properly, um, and I mentioned some of the etiquettes of dua that he mentions in the tafsir, in, in the article, um, but if one makes dua again properly, focusing only on Allah Azza wa Jal, being, being diligent in one's dua, doing it out of, you know, earnestness and, and and love of Allah and, and, and out of that desire um, actually it becomes he says, Imam Razi says one of the closest ways to get to Allah Azza wa Jal, and one of the strongest bridges to build between a, 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 a devotee and, and his creator and then he goes on to give an interpretation of the ayah when my servant calls out to me I'm telling him I am near um, I am near. I respond to the one who calls out to me. So he gives a very, you know, he says this is one of the most um, powerful verses of the Quran, where ultimately he think about the Creator of the universe zooming in on you, zooming in on you specifically, saying. I will be, I will draw near to you if you call out to me. Um, and I'm ready to open that door should you seek it. My door is open. Are you ready to come in? So Imam Al-Razi said this is one of the most beautiful ways to build that relationship with one's creator. So it's not that this is an impediment. This actually becomes the great, one of the most powerful ways to get closer to Allah Azza wa Jal. So, so in that way, he kind of responds to the objection. And this is not the philosophical one, as you mentioned earlier, that the last two, four, uh, five and six, are not really philosophical objections. 
they're objections made um you know that's related to to sort of acts and one's own states uh so those are the kind of six broad objections and replies that imam al-razi gives mm. and some concluding points is you know just from the presentation is that you know this 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 notion of dua al-su'al asking allah azza wa jalla petitioning allah has some interesting philosophical and theological questions and we've teased out some of this today albeit in broad strokes there are responses to them again these responses the assumption is these responses have to be watertight philosophical not really the responses just have to show that you know it can weaken or diffuse or disarm some you know uh, the force um of or redirect some of the force of the objections um because the, the objections themselves rest on certain assumptions that they, they themselves are objectionable. Um, the There is a ta'thir of dua, there is an efficacy to the dua, because it's a way praying brings one closer to Allah Azza wa Jal, for example. What greater um, power can something have than drawing the creator to oneself? Um, there are a lot of benefits to dua, uh, again, Arazi mentions those, although we didn't give a, a, a list of these today. Um, prayers have an amount, enormous amount of significance, significant effects on the one praying, um, whether that's their own psychological states, feeling calm, you know, being uh, assured that Allah Azza wa Jal has listened to their prayer and, and forgiven them and, and, and granted them uh, what they've requested. And the akhirah welfare, um, the afterlife welfare. Um, again, that's a matter of the ghayb, so that's not something we can judge now. But because we believe in Allah and 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 the person petitioning Allah has confidence in whatever whatever Allah says, has full conviction that it will be granted as part of the afterlife welfare, and ultimately how prayers are factored into our acts or how our acts are factored into the divine providence, this is really beyond human knowledge. Um, but we're told that Allah has given it consideration, mm. has given it consideration. Um, so I think in a, in, a, in a sort of broad, sort of broad brush way, we've gone through the problem of, of what's known as a problem of petitionary prayer, how in our tradition, ulama have dealt with it it's not an issue that's gone unnoticed mm, yeah. um imam al-razi to my knowledge is probably the one who's addressed it in the most extensive way in his tafsir and his philosophical works if there are others that have addressed it in in equally sort of detailed substantive term please let me know um i would love to, to discuss that and there are some responses given and, you know, this is an interesting area that inter intersects with other areas um, of, 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 of theology. So I hope, you know, that was sort of sort of broadly beneficial. Um, and again, though we didn't go into the weeds and the kind of my intention was not to, mm. um, I wanted to just get the sort of framework um, out there. And then the article and the handout that I mentioned at the beginning will go through these in a lot more detail for those who have the appetite for it.
for this uh, summary and systematic breakdown. I mean, this is such an important topic, not not merely from an apologetics angle, whereby we're simply seeking to address the intellectual confusion of some people, yes, but it's yes, also very yes. spiritually and theologically enriching to understand just how important making dua is for our own souls and yes. how our different theological beliefs ranging from Allah um, attributes to predestination all just beautifully complement one another. So, you know, once again, Jazakallah Khairan for, you know, doing the hard work of bringing all these points together and brilliantly articulating them for our listeners. And as someone who read your article, I know that, uh, you know, you've done a great job simplifying and summarizing the, the contents of that article. But as you said, if anyone's looking for something really rich, um, uh, more enriching in their they love to read your, your article has a, a lot more to offer in terms of going into the depth uh, of these issues and showing what's currently being discussed in, in the current discourse uh, uh, on this matter. And, you know, looking at the arguments, uh, I, I find it, you know, uh, fascinating that a, a correct. Um, oh, I think uh, Saf uh, left the room. Saf, uh, you're 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 muted. Yeah, sorry, Aki. You continue. You're saying about the uh, the importance of the du'a for ourselves. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, you know, it, it, it's. Uh, I'm just saying that it, it's it's extremely important. You know, for our own souls and um, and uh, for understanding how our different beliefs, ranging from Allah's attributes and predestination, um, just complement each other. And so I also want to thank you for simplifying your article because uh, it was, um, you know, uh, uh, I know it went into a lot more depth and was very enriching. And for those that would love to read, uh, you know, such things, uh, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll greatly benefit um, from your article. And, you know, I, I just want to say, looking at the arguments that you addressed, yeah. um, you know, I've, uh, you know, I could see that just having a correct understanding of Allah's omniscience, um, you know, that would off the cuff probably address half of these arguments. So, you know, there was the uh, impassibility problem, the problem on, yes. of omniscience and the divine decree problem. It's just having a correct understanding of how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's divine knowledge is. You don't even have to get into the depth, the yeah. weeds of it, um, should, you know, render these arguments uh, should undermine the force of these arguments. But there was one thing I did want to ask you about, which, yeah. was, which was the first problem that you dealt with, the, the impassibility problem. Yes. Um, keeping aside, just keeping aside the divine timelessness and divine yeah. temporality um, the discussions and debates, can a divine temporalist who believes that Allah SWT, um, operates in time or not restricted or contained by time, but, you know, operates in time. He, he acts successively. Can yeah. he at least address this specific objection that, you know, no dua will not necessarily change Allah, will not change his mind or not change his ways because he also, the divine temporalist would also believe that Allah is omniscient and knows well in advance 
yes. what the person making uh, that the person will be making dua at this particular point, and then yeah. I've already yep. decreed that in advance. So, I mean, just when it, to that specific objection, would the divine temporalist be in a position to to address that? You think? Yeah, I, th I think so. I think so. Um, the what the divine the, the, the divine temporalist will 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 be in an advantage to say that when an act is done in time, i.e. the du'a, mm. making du'a for Khalid to reach home safely, mm. that du'a made by the person, let's say right now, God will know that act right there and right now as it occurs. And that will be something he knows. Mm. Um, mm. So in one sense then, um, the temporalist view about God is that um, the matter can be addressed there and then. Mm. Not, it's, it becomes quite hard to then how how does an eternalist, someone who believes in a tem, mm. Allah being a temporal, mm -mm -mm. how does an atemporal person then know the act as it occurs when okay. it does? Yeah, uh -huh. in time specifically. So this is known as the uh, the problem of tensed facts. Or yeah, yeah. How yeah. how would an eternalist deal with? Because God doesn't know things. Oh, I think um, Saf is um, has frozen again. Let's give him some time. Divine. I think the the divine temporalists, um, depending on what. We have to look at some of the details of the divine temporalist view. So, in in philosophy, an eternal, an atemporal view of divine of the divine would mean that the knowledge isn't known at the time, at the specific time in which the act of du'a was made, as it were. Whereas a divine temporalist would agree that no, would differ and say no. God can know the act as it occurs in time. And in fact, I think it's a good question you ask. Um, the temporalists of them will have the advantage of knowing, of God knowing that the du'a made at the time that it's made. Some of this I'm trying to bring out in my paper with uh, Sheikh Rasulullah ibn Taymiyyah. Although at the moment, and I know this is taking us away from our, our topic for today, at the moment I know the academic consensus seems to be that you know he was temporalist in his view. Um, uh, uh, at the moment, uh, I'm reading him as an eternalist generally, hmm. but he claims that Allah knows things in time. And what's our evidence for it? Scripture. Hmm. Allah tells us that he knows what people do at the time that, the, that they do it. What more do you want? So if Scripture is saying he knows things in time, then he knows things in time. Um, but ultimately, I'll say one thing on, on this issue, because I know it, it does open up a whole... Um, we can't discuss it unless we lay out the assumptions and the axioms of the temp what temporalist model we're using and what a temporalist model we're using. But one thing Arazi is very emphatic in doing, especially in this this topic of divine omniscience, he's ready to say in lots of parts in his tafsir, just don't know. We just leave it to how Allah knows everything. We just got to leave it. Um, so the argument from argument from cluelessness, yeah, the argument from cluelessness, just don't know. So we just leave it to the divine how he knows it. But I think there is a case to be made, petitionary prayer and the temporalist model, um, 
and you know and it's an invitation for fleshing out how that could look in terms of petitionary prayer or even foreknowledge in general i know you raised it mm. under foreknowledge great so you know just one request before i uh let you go. I mean, we've spoken a lot about du'a today, so I think it would only be suitable to end this discussion with some du'a. So can you please do us the honors? Allahumma ameen. Rabbana zalamna anfusana wa illam tarfil lana wa tarahamna lana kunnanna al-khasim. Allahumma inni asaluka minal ni'ma tamamaha wa minal isma dawamaha wa minal rahmati shumulaha wa minal afiyah usulam wa minal aishi arghaduhu wa minal umri as'aduhu ومن الإحسان أتمه ومن إنعام عمه ومن الفضل أعظبه ومن اللطف أقربه اللهم كن لنا ولا تكن علينا اللهم أختم بالسعادة آجالا وحقق بزيادة آمالا وقرن بالعافية غضونا وأصالنا وجعل إلى رحمتك مصيرنا ومآلنا واصبب السجال عفوك على ذنوبنا ومن علينا بإصلاح عيوبنا وجعل التقوى زادنا وفي دينك اجتهادنا وعليك توكلنا واعتمادنا اللهم ثبتنا على نهج الاستقامة وعذنا في الدنيا من الموجبات الندامة يوم القيامة وخفف عنا ثقل أوزار ورزقنا عيشة الأبرار وكفنا واصرف عنا شر الأشرار واعتب رقابنا ورقاب آبائنا وأمهاتنا وإخواننا وأخواتنا من النار برحمتك يا عزيز ويا غفار يا كريم يا ستار يا عليم يا جبار يا الله يا الله يا الله برحمتك يا رحم الرحمين ويا أول الأولين ويا آخر الآخرين برحمتك يا رحم الرحمين ويا ذو القوة المتين ويا راحم المساكين ويا رحم الرحمين لا إله إلا أنت سبحانك إني كنت من الظالمين وصلى الله على حبيبك محمد وآله وصحبه أجمعين والحمد لله رب العالمين رب العالمين it's been an honor for you to been an honor for you know having you here uh on blogging theology and shall we hope to to have you more uh in the future Love keep up the good work and and we make dua to allah azza wa that makes this i say you know a lighthouse a beacon um for all of us and you you probably don't know how many people you've benefited and are benefiting by the fadl and the karam of allah azza wa and it just uh, we ask Allah to take it from strength to strength and keep it and keep it up. And Allah give you all tawfiq and the team. Inshallah. akhi. And, you know, thank you once again for this uh, very insightful and uh, beneficial uh, presentation today. And I'm going to part you and our listeners with the Islamic greetings of Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same-game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. 
New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C.